This Advent season, experience the powerful promise of God. Hope in the person Jesus. Together, let's see what God has in store. Well, this is our second week in our series, A Thrill of Hope. And our focus this morning is the way of hope. We will be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. I want to invite you this morning to turn to your New Testament. It's the third book, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And would you stand for the reading of the Gospel this morning? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you know why, you know why they put all those names in there? Um, they put all of those names in there because part of what Luke is writing is he understands this is a historical document. This is a real, you can look up these people. These are real people who served in real time. And he's trying to help us understand that this is an event that is true and took place. And so we have the son of Zechariah, John, in the wilderness. Verse 3, he went into the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect more taxes than you're required to, he told them. Soldiers came and asked, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John possibly might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is more powerful. And his straps of those sandals, I won't be worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted the people and, and proclaimed the good news to them. When John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil other things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John in prison. The word of God given for the people of God, and we respond together. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. If you've ever driven a rocky, one-lane, mountainous road, um, you can understand why it is more desirous to have a straight path. 
On your right is this sharp drop-off, and it's down, and you're looking to, wondering how far actually down that is, and what would you do if the car went off that way? And on your left, you've got the sheer rock, and you come around the corner, and uh, you meet another car, and then you begin this awkward dance back and forth of who has the right-of-way, and how do you get around, and are we going to be a block mirrors? How are we going to do this? And, and, and if you're not careful when you come around the corner, um, it could be a disaster. Now, in the context of this scripture, there weren't any cars driving up winding mountain roads. But to be able to not see can put you in harm's way. For around the corner, there could be thieves, or there could be a a potential uh, of all kinds of things that could take place that would, and it happened all the time to those who were listening to this. They were constantly on the guard for things that were around the corner, robbers that were around the corner that would harm them physically or relieve them of their resources. The danger and the difficulty of mountain paths were something those that were listening to would have recognized. But this text is not talking about literal mountains or literal valleys. It's talking about preparing the way of the Lord so that people might see, hear, and know the way of hope that the Lord offers for all those who believe. John preaching in the desert was in the great tradition of the Hebrew prophets. He, he was aware that time was running out. He has got this burning message, and, and he's not going to talk about peripheral matters. He, he's not going to spend time on trivial pursuits. He's not swimming in the, in the shallow end of the pool. He's got something important to say. Time is short. He knows that time is short, for it won't be long before Herod will have him put to death. And so in the time that he has, he is trying to say the most important things that he can. Now, there were people that were coming out from Jerusalem. They were interested. I think some were interested in his message and some were interested in the craziness. We, we know from other writings that, that, uh, that they were interested in the ways that he dressed and the kind of the, the grasshopper kind of things that he ate and, and, and his fiery preaching. And, and they began to ask him questions. Who are you? And, and he was quick to say, I'm not the Christ. That, that one is coming. Well, are are you Elijah? He says, no, no, I'm not him. And while they persisted in their questions, they weren't sure who he was. It was clear what his message was. Repent. You know, there comes a time in our, our, we preachers' lives where what we long for more than anything is for people to just hear the message. Don't listen to my accent, don't look at my clothes, don't critique my style, don't criticize my grammar or lack of it. Just listen to what I'm saying, for time is short for every one of us. I would suggest this morning that's exactly where John found himself in this passage. He knows that time is short. He's got important things that he wants to to say. If people are going to travel the way of hope, John gives us, I think, three important actions for that journey. The first one, John's message calls people to repentance. One of the towering marks of this age is often the absence of guilt. Now, some are pleased that guilt has been dethroned, and others see it as a bad sign. And I will admit that throughout history, there have been times in which the church has used guilt as a weapon. And I'm not advocating the abuse of guilt in order to manipulate, but I am arguing this. There is a right and there is a wrong. 
And we can't decide in among ourselves what is the right thing for me and the wrong thing for me and just decide that we're going to have our own accountability because I've decided in my own individual truth the things that are good and the things that are bad. And the absence of conviction means that we don't have much need for repentance. The absence of, of guilt and conviction means that the need for repentance is greatly minimized, if not altogether eliminated. For many, the, world, the word repentance is a, is a word from generations that, that, that have gone before us. It belongs in yesterday. It belongs with things like sackcloth and ashes and mourner's benches. You see, repentance is, is not just something we say we're sorry to when we've gotten caught. Repentance is far more than saying, I'm sorry. Nor is repentance even turning over a new leaf. Now, I've got to admit to you that, that one of the most refreshing times for me in the week, maybe my favorite part of the week, is Sunday afternoon. Because we come and have this great morning together, and we worship together and have a great time together. And, and I get to go home, and in most of your life, you're thinking about going to work on Monday. I'm thinking about just dying, exhausted. And, it, and yet there's refreshment to it. I get to start a whole new week. It's like putting a whole new piece of paper in the typewriter. The, the thing begins all over again. But, but repentance is more than just starting over again. Repentance isn't even just being faithful in your attendance each week. In John Steinbeck's story, The Wayward Bus, maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's about this old dilapidated bus that is making a cross-country trip and, uh, and, and takes a shortcut. Now, here's just an aside. Any time in literature that someone takes a shortcut, it's just bad news. It, it never goes well. Well, the bus gets stuck in the mud. And so the driver uh, goes off to get help, and the people seek uh, refuge in a cave. And the author tells us that, that this is a kind of a crazy bunch of people. It's an interesting bunch of people. He, he makes it clear in his writing that these people are not just physically lost, but they are spiritually lost as well. And as they head into this cave, he, he lets us know that, that above the cave, interestingly, there is a word that with a, with a spray can, I think, has been painted on the top of the cave. One word, it says, Repent. And even though he points that out, that all the people from the bus are going into the cave and they're walking under this sign, none of them uh, seem to even recognize what that word means. And all too often, in the busyness of our life and in the, the craziness of all the things and the shortcuts of our life, we are in the same place. And yet John the Baptist calls us to take sin seriously. Why? Because God does. You see, repentance is not just changing our mind or feeling sorry for something that we have done. Repentance means to turn from where we're going and go another direction. But it's not just to turn in a random direction. Repentance says, turn from where I'm going and turn towards Christ. Not just turn and do something different, but turn from where I'm going and turn towards Christ. That's what John the Baptist is trying to say to his audience. Turn towards this one who is coming. Prepare the way. Keep your eyes not on me, but on him. So often we think of when, when 
in a, in a moment like that when John is saying, stop doing what you're doing and, and, and turn towards Jesus, that that's some kind of sacrifice in our life. But I think we can learn both here and I think we can learn probably through testimonies of people here who recognize that it's when I turn from where I was going and put my eyes in, on Jesus that the shackles of chains in my life were broken. For then death has no hold on me. Now, you might say that preaching about John the Baptist um, in Advent is kind of a bummer for Christmas. But I would submit to you that it is this weird, eccentric Baptist guy they call John who helps us understand the joy of Christmas. For he is calling us not to Christmas or life the way it is. He's calling us to be prepared for the way it is meant to be. So John first admonishes his listeners to repent. Second, he tells them to share. Luke 3.10, we read that the crowd approached him, and they began to say, what, what shall we do then? I mean, they're saying, what, what's expected of us? And so John gives them this word. He says, if you have two coats, share with one who has none. He who has food, do likewise. Now, sharing is, 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 basic, is so basically fundamental to our faith that, that anyone who has somehow not begun to grasp that principle will miss the major thrust of Advent. One of my favorite Christmas stories is O. Henry's short story, The Gift of the Magi. Some of you know the story about this uh, desperately poor young couple around the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. I'm getting old enough that the turn of the century isn't... You know what I mean. It's the 1900s, all right, somewhere in there. And um, they don't have enough money to buy each other, their, their uh, husband and wife, to buy each other Christmas gifts of, any, uh, of anything nice. But they, they had each a nice possession. And so they took the possession. The husband took his pocket watch. It's what he had. It was the thing that he most valued. And he took it and he sold it. And his wife had this beautiful long hair. And he bought this, this hair comb thing. What do you call it? comb, thank you, something for her hair as an act of love. And they get together to exchange their Christmas presents. He's bought it. He's, he's coming home and he's about to give his wife, he gives his wife this thing for her hair and she takes the scarf off that she'd been wearing that day and we learn in the story that she has cut all of her hair off and sold it so that she could buy a, uh, um, a chain. Some of you know the story. Third service, I'll really have it down. <laughs> and they looked at each other. He didn't have the watch anymore. She didn't have the hair anymore. The point of the story is obvious. It's not the gift that you give is important. But it is the sharing of the spirit of sacrifice that you give to each other that makes all the difference. One of the messages of Advent is that we are called to be a sharing people. Not just one time of year or one kind of season. The calendar doesn't turn to December and we move into share mode and by January we're back to the Scrooge mode of our life. Not if we want to walk in the way of hope. In the latter part of the 17th century, German preacher Auguste Franck founded an orphanage to take care of the homeless in his community. And one day Franck was very desperate for the needs of the work of the 
of the orphanage, and uh, um, this widow, Christian widow, comes and knocks on his door, and uh, she says that she is in uh, bad shape, and she asks for one ducat, one gold coin. And because of the financial situation of he and the orphanage, he politely and respectfully told her that he could not help her. Disheartened, the woman began to weep, and he, he was moved by that to tears, and he said, can you just hold on, just stay here, and he went back in the house, and he got on his knees and began to pray, and he said, God, what would you have me do? And he felt like he heard the Holy Spirit say, you have a coin, and she doesn't. And so he went to the door, and he gave her the coin. Two days later, he received a letter in the mail from her, thanking him and saying that because of his generosity, she had been praying that the Lord would bless the orphanage. Later that day, he received a gift from a wealthy lady in the community of 12 ducats, 12 gold pieces. And then shortly after that, a friend in Sweden sent him two more gold pieces. And he was overwhelmed by that, 14, and he had just given away one when he soon would learn that the orphanage was the recipient of Prince Ludwig van Wurttemberg's estate. And there would be 500 gold pieces. And when he heard this, he wept in great gratitude for he sacrificially had provided. And what he thought he was doing was going to impoverish himself. He thought sacrificing was going to impoverish himself. And yet he still did. Now I want you to hear the point here. What enriched his life is not that he received all the gold pieces. It doesn't always work that way. What enriched his life is that he listened to the word of the Holy Spirit that called him to sacrifice. And he obeyed. And that's where he received his wealth. The fact that the gold came in was just a testimony of this act of sharing. The crowd continued to ask John, what should we do? And John said, if you've got two tunics, share with one who has none. And if you've got food, do the same. Repent, share, and the third thrust of John's message was to serve. In Luke 3, 12 to 14, we learn that tax collectors... Tax collectors were coming to John to be baptized, and then they'd say, okay, now what do I do with my life? And he would say, listen, collect no more taxes than is appointed to you, because you know they were, they were collecting more. They were living on that. Soldiers were coming, we're told. Soldiers would come and say, be baptize me, and now what shall I do? And he says, rob no more. Make no false accusations. In other words, whatever role you have, whatever your task is in life, do it ethically and to the best of your ability. If you're a tax collector, be an honest tax collector. If you're a soldier, be a good soldier. In whatever role you're in, you can be who God has called you to be right where you are. Christian service is not, is not uh, uh, always to be a missionary in a, former, uh, a foreign land. In fact, sometimes it's harder to, to go next door than it is to a foreign land. I think that sometimes we have this idea that God is sitting around and he's saying, you know what? Once Justin really makes this two or three different decisions, then I'm going to use him. You know, or, or you know, once, once David does this, then I'm really going to... Once he got a different... No, God isn't saying that. He's saying, I can use you right 
where you are today. Right where you are. Not because you need to be somebody different than who you are. God can use you in your situation. He can use you in your home. He can use you in the marketplace. He can use you in your school. He can use you in retirement by doing the best you can for God right where you are today. John is helping people prepare for Jesus. Someone asked the late Vince Lombardi, what's the secret of having such a great coaching career? And he responded, I had my team constantly concentrating on the fundamentals. Well, what are the fundamentals of faith? I think Luke helps us with three of them. Repent, share, and serve. Advent of all times can be one of those times where the road is curvy a bit more. The, sometimes the overwhelming grief of the season. Or sometimes the lure of commercialism or the idolatry of prioritizing even good things like family above the things of God. The way gets windy and curvy and a little difficult sometimes to see the light around the corner. Others struggle with this kind of hope all year long because there are mountains in the way. Christ came to show a new way, a new way of hope, of healing, and of holiness. And he revealed a kingdom that is different from the kingdom of this world. And we can repent and live and serve and share in that kingdom today. We can make straight the path so that others might see the light of Christ at work in our lives and find his gift in their life. Advent is a time of preparation for us to live into the mission of God's call. And so I guess the question becomes, and I said last week, that preparation, preparation almost always is tough. It's almost always work. If we take seriously this idea that God wants to shape us and make us more into who he has called us to be, it will sometimes not always be comfortable. And so the question becomes this. As you are preparing in this season, inviting God to break in, is there an area in your life in which you're going this way and you know you need to turn and go Christ's way? Is there a habit or a relationship or a brokenness or an unforgiveness that you've been going this way and you know that you need to just come and repent and say, God, in this area of my life, I need to go your way if you're really going to prepare in me to be who you've called me to be? Or is there a place in your life in which in order for God to really help you be who he's called you to be, you've got to let go of some things you've been holding on to too tightly. Is there, a, is there something that God's calling you to be a person who shares with more open hands and recognizing that when you, when you share for the kingdom, it does not impoverish you, it enriches you. Or is there a place in your life that if you really are going to let God prepare you to be who he's called you to be, to be a person who walks in the way of hope, that you've heard his voice asking you 
to serve, to serve for an hour here or there or to serve this person or to work in some way, in some way that lets others see that the values of the kingdom are not always the values of the world. Because let's just be honest, service is hard. But I think if we want to be who God calls us to be, we've got to prepare ourselves and say, Lord, is there a way in me that you want me to go from here and turn my face towards here? Is there something I'm holding on to that I just need to let go of? Or is there some place that you're calling me to serve? And I will serve. Father, we give thanks this morning for the ability to be here and and these words that we've sung that remind us of the joy of the season and that joy is not in our circumstance but in the God who holds us. And and these words that we've opened up in, in your scripture today in the Gospel of Luke and, and we hear that uh, about John talking about prepare the way of the Lord and, and, and the call of our own life to be a people who prepare. But Father, is there is there, if we're really honest... Is there a place in us that if if we were really to take seriously to prepare our lives to be more who you've called us to be, that there's a place in us we know that we need to turn from. We've been doing this and we need to turn and we need to put our eyes on you. Is there a hurt we've held on to? Is there an activity in our life that doesn't honor you? That if we really want to be who you've called us to be, we need to repent and face you in this area. God, is there an area in our life in which you need to stretch us to help us work on the generosity of our spirit? Or sometimes we're so fearful that being a people who share that impoverishes us instead of recognizing that, that everything in the world is yours. And help us to be a people who live in a generous spirit. Is that a preparation, God, in our own life? Or God, is there, a, is there a place you've been calling us to serve in our jobs or our, or our schools? Or, or it, it's so easy to be a people who, who, who shout joy to the world on Sunday and yet and then go out and, and, and the service of our life doesn't reflect the words of our mouth in a place like this. Is there a place as you prepare in us that you, you want to shape us? Father, as we think about coming to your table this morning, we come being reminded of the gift of uh, the gift of Easter and the gift of Christmas. But beyond even that, the gift of grace of your spirit here in this place. The broken bread that reminds us of, of the brokenness of Christ's body, willing to lay down his life so that we might understand the depth and breadth of forgiveness. The cup that reminds us that it is not in our own strength or way, but it is only by the grace of God for the forgiveness of sins in our life. That if we want to be who we are, it's not in our strength. And God, forgive us for trying. But it comes through you. 
And so as we come to your table this morning, maybe the very act of coming to your table is our declaration of repentance. That, God, I've been walking this way, but I need to have my eyes on you. Maybe the very act of walking to the table this morning is our declaration that says, God, I want to be and live with a generous heart and a generous spirit just as you poured out your son's life. I I want to be a person who lives in that kind of way. Or maybe the very act of coming to the table this morning will be the declaration of us saying, God, I'll go where you call me to go. Do what you call me to do. Not someday, not next week, not when I get my act together, but God, right now where you've placed me. I won't have it all figured out, but I'm going to take a step forward. Lord, as we come to your table, may we be reminded of this hope that is not in our circumstance but in the God who saves. We give thanks for your grace.